All right, we are back. Let's take a more serious look back at the year, more serious than Dave Barry, anyway. I do appreciate the fact that The Economist self-evaluated by taking a look back at how good their predictions were for 2021. Their self-evaluation says, well, we got the broad strokes right in respect to some of our predictions, but they did not go far enough. They said the combination of vaccines and cheap rapid tests began to turn the tide of the pandemic. They said, as expected, there were fights between and within countries about access to vaccines. And skepticism and conspiracy theories led some people to refuse to have the jab. But we failed to foresee, they said, just how widespread vaccine refusal would become and the extent to which it would become a badge of political identity. Nor did we anticipate the significance of coronavirus variants, a word that did not appear in their predictions of last year. They said in politics, we were right that Donald Trump kept the Republicans in his thrall and continued to undermine faith in America's electoral process. We pointed to the risk of post-election violence, but the insurrection on January 6th showed just how far Mr. Trump was willing to go in an effort to retain power, much further than most people expected. Well, more to say about that in a moment, but it is funny that, you know, every year they, they do take a look ahead and they do have some predictions for 2022, some of which I think we'll cite. To the question, how much will the global GDP grow in 2022 relative to 2021, as measured by the IMF, their team of experts said less than 3%, 4% of the people, between 3 and 4%, 22%, and between 4 and 5%, 44%. And between 5 and 6, 24%, and more than 6, 6%. Well, we'll see how that goes. To the question, who will win the 2022 presidential election in Brazil, their experts said Luis Ignacio da Silva, 68%. Jair Bolsonaro, 20%. Well, I hope, I hope they can get rid of Bolsonaro. What will be the outcome of the 2022 midterm elections in the U.S.? Republicans will control the House, Democrats the Senate, 61%. Republicans will control both, 23%. Democrats will control both, 14%. Ouch! And no, Ms. Grimm, they did not weigh in on the odds of Major biting someone else. And CNN took a look back at 2021 to uh, try and assess the the top 10 media stories of this last year. And they were guided in this by their assessment of how much attention a given story generated, which itself is an interesting way to look at it. They evidently used something called Chartbeat to list the year's, quote, most engaging stories, unquote. And they noted out of 110 headlines they looked at, more than 30 were about Donald Trump or members of his family, whereas only eight were about President Biden. And most of those also involved Trump. Ouch! Four more of the top 10 were related to the January 6th insurrection. The number one story was Amy Gardner's January 3rd scoop for the Washington Post about the audio of Trump's hour-long call with Brad Raffensperger which, of course, turned out to be a key part of Trump's subsequent coup attempt. In this analysis for CNN done by Brian Stetler, who's part of their business Business team, among the top 10 media stories were the GOP's media January 6th delusionism. Stetler says it started on the very night of the riot. The big lie led to the big denial, desperate attempts to erase the violent reality of the attempted coup. Pro-Trump outlets sowed conspiracy theories and barely covered the real news 
about the insurrection's aftermath or the new efforts to subvert democracy at the state level. Voting tech companies resorted to lawsuits to try and hold liars accountable. I think I want to jump right from that into another CNN piece, in this case a an editorial, an opinion piece written by Bill Carter. He's a media analyst for CNN and for 25 years has looked at television for the New York Times. This is worth some extensive quoting from, I think. Noted Bill Carter, "'Tis the season, but there aren't many reasons to be jolly. The pandemic is back, not that it ever really left. Headlines are again dominated by explosively rising case numbers, which actually means rising numbers of depression and panic." Noted Carter, COVID is a news story so inescapable it swallows up the attention of the nation. And yet, in lists of the biggest news story of 2021 that media organizations are composing, COVID is huge, but the ongoing challenge to the American democracy remains a constant. The headlines began in January with the first serious attempt of a coup in U.S. history and have been running ever since, highlighted by the unceasing machinations by supporters of Donald Trump to either restore him to office or find some extra-legal way to eliminate the possibility he could ever lose if he ran again. Indeed, as much as the COVID crisis has affected our nation, I have no hesitation in arguing that the story of our imperiled democracy is the biggest story of the year, a story unlike we've ever seen before in the United States. The Capitol Insurrection and the egregious attempts by one party first to blow up the peaceful transfer of power, the bedrock of our democracy, and then to make several attempts to ensure no election would ever again deny them power, has sweeping implications for the future. I certainly don't believe I have ever seen any other news story in my own lifetime, which goes back to the 1950s, that has shaken the nation to its foundation as this one has. The country's been buffeted by tragic and frightening stories throughout the decades. I followed the news, starting in my own experience with the John F. Kennedy assassination. The shooting of JFK certainly seems like a thunderbolt hurled at the heart of our government, with all kinds of disorienting details, including the accused assassin being murdered live on television, and then the immediate and persistent theories that ran rampant. A terrible time for sure. I need to stop right there and say, well, we'll have more to say about that. But said Bill Carter, next, the escalation of the Vietnam War, which ran parallel to the struggle of the civil rights movement and made the 60s the most divisive time of my early life. The 70s brought Watergate, which was supposed to be the biggest political scandal of our history. On through many tragic and disturbing mass shootings, especially the horrific killing of school children, and the terrifying morning of 9-11, an event that did unite the nation, in overpowering grief anyway, Nothing can diminish the staggering impact of these events and the ripple effects through the consciousness of Americans. But the moment we are at right now feels different, eerie, almost like the stillness that presages the coming storm of a magnitude we can't yet measure. All those earlier crises brought shock, horror, and terrible sadness, but the State of the Union remained stable. Maybe only two events before my time, the Civil War and World War II, are legitimate rivals to our current crisis in terms of potentially destructive impact. In both those earlier cases, our democracy also came under mortal threat, once from internal forces, once external. Both encompassed authoritarianism, violent threats to opponents, 
popular appeal based on rage and grievances, occult following, and very big lies. In both these past cases, our democracy survived. Notes Carter, lies about the election have been thoroughly discredited already in courts and endless audits. But pro-Trump Republicans continue to believe the fabrications, and worse, use them to instill biased election officials and to enact laws that pave the way for them to overturn vote totals they don't like, all accompanied by unceasing efforts to suppress or deny the votes to people who oppose them. That utterly unjustified and nefarious activity is the fuel stoking the drive to see the American experiment in governance of the people for the people, and by the people, perish from the earth. This isn't a case of over-the-top partisan politics gone a bit too far, where one side pushes this way and the other side pushes back. It's a slowly unfolding horror movie. And yes, unless something changes the scary ending, it will certainly be the biggest news story of my lifetime. Chilling words, and unfortunately we have some to report that are even more chilling. The extensive piece that appeared in The Atlantic from Bart Gelman. The article is titled January 6th with the subheadline, Donald Trump is better positioned to subvert an election now than he was in 2020. And we're going to have to quote from this pretty extensively, I think. Set aside a few minutes, Mr. McMillan. Said Bart Gelman, technically, the next attempt to overthrow the national election may not qualify as a coup will rely on subversion more than violence, although each will have its place. If the plot succeeds, the ballots cast by American voters will not decide the presidency in 2024. Thousands of votes will be thrown away, or millions, to produce the required effect. The winner will be declared the loser. The loser will be certified president-elect. The prospect of this democratic collapse is not remote. People with the motives to make it happen are manufacturing the means. Given the opportunity, they will act. They are acting already. Said Gelman, who or what will safeguard our constitutional order is not apparent today. It is not even apparent who will try. Democrats, big and small d both, are not behaving as if they believe the threat is real. Some of them, including President Joe Biden, have taken passing rhetorical notice, but their attention wanders. They're making a grievous mistake. The democratic emergency is already here, said Richard Hansen, professor of law and political science at UC Irvine. Hansen prides himself on a judicious temperament. Only a year ago, he was cautioning me against hyperbole. Now, when he speaks matter-of-factly about the death, now he speaks matter-of-factly about the death of our body politic. He says, we face a serious risk that American democracy as we know it will come to an end in 2024, but urgent action is not happening. Oates Gelman, Trump and his party have convinced a dauntingly large number of Americans that the essential workings of democracy are corrupt and that made-up claims of fraud are true and that only cheating can thwart their victory at the polls. That that tyranny has usurped their government, and that violence is a legitimate response. Any Republican might benefit from these machinations, but let's not pretend there's any suspense. Unless biology intercedes, Donald Trump will seek and win the Republican nomination for president in 2024. The party is in his thrall. 
No opponent can break it, and few will try. Neither will a setback outside politics, indictments say, or disastrous turn in business, can prevent Trump from running. If anything, it will redouble his will to power. As we near the anniversary of January 6th, investigators are still unearthing the roots of the insurrection that sacked the Capitol and sent members of Congress fleeing for their lives. What we know already, and could not have known then, is that the chaos wrought on that day was integral to a coherent plan. In retrospect, the insurrection takes on the aspect of rehearsal. Even in defeat, Trump has gained strength for a second attempt to seize office should he need to after the polls close on November 5th, 2024. It may appear otherwise. After all, he no longer commands the executive branch, which he tried and mostly failed to enlist in his first coup attempt. Yet the balance of power is shifting his way in arenas that matter more. Trump's successfully shaping the narrative of the insurrection in the only political ecosystem that matters to him. The immediate shock of the event, which briefly led some senior Republicans to break with him, has given way to near-unanimous embrace. Virtually no one a year ago, certainly not I, predicted that Trump would compel the whole party's genuflection to the big lie and the recasting of insurgents as martyrs. Today, the few GOP dissenters are being cast out. Trump has reconquered his party by setting its base on fire. Tens of millions of Americans perceive their world through black clouds of his smoke. His deepest source of strength is the bitter grievance of Republican voters that they lost the White House and are losing their country to alien forces with no legitimate claim to power. This is not some transient or loosely committed population. Trump has built the first American mass political movement in the past century, that is willing to fight by any means necessary, including bloodshed, for its cause. I'm hoping by now this, this, this article has, has, has gained your attention, dear listener. It is a long piece, and I strongly urge you to find it and read it in, in its entirety. Gelman describes tracking down Trump supporters, in one case Richard C. Patterson, to talk to him about what he thought the evidence was and was shocked by his responses. Patterson, in turn, cited retired three-star Air Force General Thomas G. McInerney, age 84, as a guy who was really rooting out what the hell really happened in election 2020. Noted Gelman, his story takes a long time to tell because the plot involves an Italian satellite, Pakistan's intelligence services, and former FBI Director James Comey selling secret U.S. cyber weapons to China. Eventually, it emerges from all this that quote, special forces mixed with Antifa, end quote, combined to invade the seat of Congress on January 6th, then blame the invasion on Trump supporters with the collusion of Senators Chuck Schumer, Mitch McConnell, along with House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. In one comedic sidelight to all of this, it turns out that Gelman was contacted by the general's son, who's described as a technology investor, and said he was torn between conflicting obligations of filial loyalty and admitting that at his age, his old man appears to have his judgment somewhat impaired. He quoted him as saying, The older he's gotten, the stranger things have gotten in terms of what he's saying. Moving along in the piece, Gelman refers to Robert A. Papp, who he describes as a political scientist. Back in, in June of 1989, Papp had been a postdoc fellow in political science when the late president of Serbia delivered a notorious speech. Slobodan Milosevic compared Muslims in the former Yugoslavia to Ottomans 
who had enslaved the Serbs for six centuries. He fomented years of genocidal war that destroyed the hope for multi-ethnic democracy there, casting Serbs as the defenders against a Muslim onslaught on European culture, religion, and European society in general. Pope sees an essential similarity between Milosevic and Trump, one that suggested disturbing hypotheses about Trump's most fervent supporters. Pape, who directs the University of Chicago's Project on Security and Threats, or CPOST, called a staff meeting two days after the Capitol attack. I talked to my research team and told them we we're going to reorient everything that we were doing. He took a deep dive in what was motivating Trump supporters. Said Pape, Milosevic inspired bloodshed by appealing to fears that Serbs were losing their dominant place to upstart minorities. And he draws comparisons to Trump's January 6th speech, wherein he says, Our country's been under siege for a long time, far longer than this four-year period. You're the real people. You're the people that built this nation. He added, We will fight. We will fight like hell. And if you don't fight like hell, you're not going to have a country anymore. Like Milosevic, Trump had skillfully deployed three classic themes of mobilization to violence. Pape wrote, The survival of the way of life is at stake. The fate of the nation is being determined now. Only genuine, brave patriots can save the country. Now, when the Biden administration got around to publishing a new strategy on homeland security last June, it described the assault on the Capitol as a product, quote, of domestic violent extremists, unquote, and invoked an intelligent assessment that said attacks by such extremists came primarily from lone wolves or small cells. Well, at least they didn't use the term lone nut assassin. Pape and his colleagues doubted that this captured what had happened on January 6th. They set out seeking systematic answers to two basic questions. Who were the insurgents, in demographic terms, and what political beliefs animated them and their sympathizers? They came to some different conclusions and noted over the previous decade, one in four of violent extremists arrested by the FBI had been unemployed. But only 7% of the January 6th insurgents were jobless, and more than half had white-collar jobs or owned their own business. These insurgents were not, by and large, affiliated with known extremist groups. Kathleen Bellow, a University of Chicago historian and co-editor of A Field Guide to White Supremacy, says it's no surprise that extremist groups were in the minority. She said January 6th wasn't designed as a mass casualty attack, but rather as a recruitment action. Here's where it gets really interesting. Pape's team mapped the insurgents by home county and ran statistical analyses looking for patterns that might help explain their behavior. The findings were counterintuitive. Counties won by Trump in the 2020 election were less likely than counties won by Biden to send an insurrectionist to the Capitol. The higher Trump's share of votes in a county, in fact, the lower the probability that insurgents live there. Why would that be? Likewise, the more rural the county, the fewer the insurgents. The researchers tried a hypothesis that insurgents might be more likely to come from counties where white household income was dropping. Not so. Household income made no difference. Only one meaningful correlation emerged. Other things being equal, insurgents were much more likely to come from a county where the white share of the population was in decline. For every one-point drop in a county's percentage of non-Hispanic whites from 2015 to 2019, the likelihood of an insurgent hailing from that county increased 25%. It was a strong link, and it held up in every state. They tried looking at what statements resonate with uh, social media posts of Trump supporters, and they found almost two-thirds of them agreed with 
African-American people or Hispanic people in our country will eventually have more rights than whites. Last March, this team decided to run a national opinion survey. The researchers first looked to identify people who said they don't trust election results and were prepared to join a protest, quote, even if I thought the protest might turn violent, unquote. That survey found that 4% of Americans agreed with both statements. It's a relatively small fraction, but it corresponds to 10 million American adults. In June, they sharpened the questions, which brought another surprise. In the new poll, they looked for people who not only distrusted the election, but agreed with the stark assertion that the 2020 election was stolen from Donald Trump and Joe Biden is an illegitimate president. Instead of asking whether survey subjects would join a protest that might turn violent, they looked for people who affirmed that the use of force is justified to restore Donald Trump to the presidency. Pollsters ordinarily expect survey respondents to give less support to more transgressive language. The more you ask pointed questions about violence, the more you should be getting social desirability bias where people just are more reluctant, said Pape. But the opposite happened. The more extreme the sentiment, the greater the number of respondents who endorsed them. In the June results, 8% agreed that Biden was illegitimate and that violence was justified to restore Trump to the White House. That works out to 21 million American adults. Have we gotten your attention yet? The remainder of the article is devoted to how they're going to do this. And it turns out Trump supporters are intending to use the U.S. Constitution in a somewhat innovative, novel way to overturn whatever election results they may not care for in 2024. And they've gone a long way to putting their necessary mechanisms in place. This was actually tried last year in the 2020 election by going to all these various state legislatures and trying to get them to invalidate the electors in their given state that had gone for Biden and instead substitute them with Trump electors, but they did not manage to succeed. Turns out a lot of Republicans were reluctant to throw democracy out the window. Now, as we noted in this program before, it is in the Constitution, the legislatures of the states of the nation get to decide what electors are sent to Washington to select a president. It's in the Constitution. So the possibility exists that if a state, say Arizona, has a bunch of Republican legislators that get together and say, well, we don't care what the election results appear to be, we're not accepting it. And we're going to send our own electors to Washington. Now, for the first few election cycles in this country, I'm not sure at what point they changed over, sometime in the 1800s, all the states decided that we're going to do it this way. Candidate runs in our state, he wins, he gets the most votes. Okay, then we pledge that state's electors to the winning candidate. And because that is still how we did things as recently as last November, Joe Biden became president. But the Trump team was working very hard on doing what it could to not let that happen. To call upon Republican legislators loyal to Trump in various states to step in and change how this was done. Now, with only five minutes left in this program, I don't have time to do the details of this justice. The details are important, and you should be aware of them, dear listener. But I think I'm going to have to send you the article to gain them. It is important to note that the Biden administration is not taking appropriate steps to deal with this very real threat to the American democracy. Now, down in Georgia, a state we've talked about with Greg Palast at some length last year and need to do again, Down in Georgia, they're enacting all kinds of legislation to make it harder for black people to vote. And they're simultaneously stepping in to make it easier for election officials to just invalidate a result they don't like and 
take over the process of selecting electors. This article notes that Attorney General Merrick Garland has filed a lawsuit to overturn some provisions of this new law down in Georgia, but not to challenge the hostile takeover of election authorities. Yes, they're dealing with the intent of uh, disenfranchising black voters, things like prohibitions and onerous fines and uh, limiting the use of ballot drop boxes and uh, the forbidding of handing out water or food to people waiting in those long lines that happen when black people don't have any voting machines. Um, Those provisions make it harder by design for Democrats to vote. The provisions that Garland did not challenge are the ones that make it easier for Republicans to just fix the outcome. But I think we do need to include a couple of quotes from near the end of the article. Said Bart Gelman, there's a clear and present danger that American democracy will not withstand the destructive forces that are now converging upon it. Our two-party system has only one party left that is willing to lose an election. The other is willing to win at the cost of breaking things that democracy cannot live without. Democracies have fallen before stresses like these, when the people who might have defended them were transfixed by disbelief. If ours is to stand, its defenders have to rouse themselves. Joe Biden looked as though he might do that on the afternoon of July 13th. He traveled to the National Constitution Center in Philadelphia. He delivered what was billed as a major address on democracy. What followed, said Bart Gelman, was incongruous. Biden began well enough, laying how the core problem of voting rights had changed. It was no longer about who gets to vote, but who gets to count the vote. There were partisan actors, he said, seizing power from independent election authorities. Quote, to me, this is simple. This is election subversion. They want the ability to reject the final count and ignore the will of the people if their preferred candidate loses, end quote. And it got better. He said, we're facing the most significant test of our democracy since the Civil War. That's not hyperbole. I'm not saying that to alarm you. I'm saying this because you should be alarmed. To which we say, here, here. Unfortunately, as Gelman notes, but then, having looked directly toward the threat on the horizon, Biden seemed to turn away, as if he doubted the evidence before his eyes. There was no appreciable call to action, save for the bare words themselves. We've got to act. Biden's list of remedies was short and grossly incommensurate with the challenge. He expressed support for two bills, the For the People Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act, that were, incidentally, both dead on arrival in the Senate because Democrats had no answer to the Republican filibuster. He said the Attorney General would double the Department of Justice staff devoted to voting rights enforcement. Civil rights groups would stay vigilant, he said. And then... Said Bart Gelman, he mentioned one last plan that proved he did not accept the nature of the threat. Quote, We'll be asking my Republican friends in Congress, in states, in cities, and counties to stand up for God's sakes and help prevent the concerted effort to undermine our election and the sacred right to vote. End quote. Said Gelman, So, enforcement of inadequate laws, wishful thinking about new laws, vigilance, voter education, and a friendly request the Republicans stand athwart their own electoral schemes. Conspicuously missing from Biden's speech was any mention of filibuster reform, without which voter rights legislation is doomed. Nor was there any mention of holding Trump and his minions accountable legally for plotting a coup. As Trump supporters have said, nobody's been charged with insurrection. The question, said Gelman, is why not? The Justice Department and FBI are chasing down the foot soldiers of January 6th, but there's no public sign they're building cases against the men and women who sent them. 
to which I would add. And how about the guy at the top of all of this? Absent consequences, they will certainly try again. An unpunished plot is practice for the next. Anyway, his final sentence is, against Biden or another Democratic nominee, Donald Trump may be capable of winning a fair election in 2024. He does not intend to take that chance. Anyway, we need to bring Stephen Harper back on this program, professor of law, University of Chicago, and talk about all of this. And we need to bring Greg Palace back, who's in the trenches fighting against all of this. This is serious business indeed. And what you and I can do about it right now, I have to be honest, in realistic terms, I'm not sure. But in 2022, we better well develop a battle plan, you and me. And by this, I mean something stronger than going to your Republican friends and saying, gee whiz, Ted, I I hope you can do the right thing. I mean, you should, you know. I'm told I got about one minute left. I want to lighten the mood just, just a hair if we can. You got one little piece here that I have to admit, I can't say this was in any way inspired by Donald J. Trump. Here's the story. A Danish artist was given $83,000 by a museum, which he was supposed to use to create art. He pocketed the cash and submitted two blank canvases, which he titled, Take the Money and Run. I don't know whether one was take the money or the one was run. I'm not sure. But the Kunsten Museum of Modern Art had given Jens Hunning the cash to use in a work on labor and money. After submitting the cashless canvases, Hunning explained, the artwork is that I've taken the money. The breach of contract is part of the work. And as far as we know at Radio Parallax, Michael Cohn was not involved. That about does it. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm your faithful host, Douglas Everett, and we're going to see you again real soon because no sooner are we done recording this, McMillan and I are going to do another. (laughs) 